Mountains. Well, good morning again, church family and guests who are joining us via our live stream. If you've just tuned in, I encourage you to visit our website after the service at oakparkbaptist.com. Uh, if you're a guest, uh, you can click the uh, uh, Stay Connected button there on the front page, and that'll allow us to take a record of your attendance and be able to reach to, out to you and, uh, and touch base with you and, and meet any need you may have. Well, this time we're going to open up our Bibles uh, to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, but I'm going to have you turn to the last chapter of the book of Genesis, so it might be easy to go to Exodus and then go back one page, and you'll be where we'll, we'll find ourselves. The whole sermon's going to cover uh, 14 chapters this morning, from chapter 37 all the way to 50, but don't worry, we're not going to read that entire block of Scripture. We're going to read, though, verses 15 through 21 to set our context as we continue this series on where is God and not losing faith when trouble strikes. Hope you've had time to turn there to Genesis, and I invite you to follow along with me in your Bibles, uh, or you can see the scriptures on your screen. This is what the word of the Lord says in Genesis chapter 50, beginning in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of, of, uh, of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against it, me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. When we're going through trials, it's a comfort to know that God cares for us, that God is near to us, that God loves us, and that he listens to us. Yet, it would be of little comfort if God was all those things, that he's loving and good, but he himself is unable to do anything about our affliction. It would bring us no comfort to know that God is good if God is not sovereign. This week, a friend and professor at the seminary posted on social media that his daughter, who's 20 years old, has been put in the hospital for pneumonia and coronavirus symptoms and that she's also been put on a ventilator. And, uh, and because of all the precautions, they haven't been able to go see her. They cannot go to the hospital. She's by herself quarantined. And the only communication that they can have with her is via uh, their iPhone devices. And they have put her on a ventilator, he said, because to try to help her breathe and prevent cardiac arrest. And he sent out that message via social media, and then at the end says, please pray. Please pray. Now, why on earth would any of us pray if we did not think God was in control? Why would we pray if God was not over our lives and our circumstances? If God is not in control of what's going on, we really do not have any hope at all. Prayers are empty, and he is just as helpless as we are. If God is merely good, loving, and kind, but not sovereign over all things, then brothers and sisters, our God is just like us. 
caught off guard by what is occurring and unable to do anything about it. Well, the good news is that our God is in control. He's both good and sovereign. And this means that he is working all things according to his purposes and his plans. And not only for his plans, but for his people's good, for our good. And so for this reason, we can, when our friends or us, we call out for prayer, we can go to the Lord in prayer. And we can be confident that not only does he hear us, but he's able to use our prayers. And he's able to work through our circumstances and bring mercy, healing, comfort, and strength as we know he's able to accomplish all his good purposes. Last Sunday we saw that that God is not the creator of evil. He's not the author of evil. We saw that he cannot practice evil. He cannot be tempted with evil and neither does he tempt us with evil. But what we're going to see this morning is that while God is wholly good, righteous, that he is light and there is no darkness in him at all, he nevertheless uses evil. Uses evil doers to accomplish his sovereign purposes. See, our God, the God of the scriptures, the God who is the one who created all things, the one and only God, he is the sustainer of all things in heaven and on earth. And so, as the Apostle Paul said in Athens before all the pagan philosophers, it is in him we live and move and find our being. God not only has spoken the world into being, he's not only created all that is good, but he also holds the world together by the word of his power. And so as the scriptures testify, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will bring about his kingdom because he possesses all the nations and he is supreme over all the earth. And even the the king's hearts are like a, a stream of water in our father's hand. And he is able to bend and turn them wherever he wills. Our God is king forever. And no purpose of his can be thwarted. When he speaks, his word comes to pass. And all things fulfill his commands. And that's just a taste of what the scriptures say about our God. Our God is the only sovereign and ruler over all creation. And his rule extends not only to the good things in this world, but even to the bad. That he, his sovereign rule even extends over evil itself. Now make no mistake about it. God hates evil. He hates sin with all of his being. As we saw last week, he is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. But the scripture, as we're going to see this morning, upholds this reality up as well, that sin and evil from beginning to end are subject to his rule. Evil does not reign over God. Our God reigns over evil. And therefore, we can find comfort. We can find comfort in this season of life when our, our souls are weary, when the evils of this world occur, when plagues and viruses threaten our lives. We can know that evil has its limits and that it does not afflict us beyond what God permits. And what God permits, he perfectly uses to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world for our ultimate good and his glory. And so this morning, I want us to see this truth of God's complete sovereignty and goodness through the story of Joseph. We could have really gone numerous places in Scripture to see these truths, but I thought Joseph would be a fitting story for us. 
For as we have read here in our passage in in chapter 50, verses 15 through 21, what was meant for evil, God meant for good. What was done out of evil hearts, evil intentions, God meant for good. And this principle stands true even for us today. And so church family and whoever's watching uh, this morning, it's my prayer that you'd find comfort in this truth. That you'd find comfort in the truth that God, the creator of heaven and of earth, meticulously works all things, both good and evil, to accomplish his redemptive purposes through Jesus Christ his son. That's what I want us to see this morning. And as we dive into the Joseph story, we're going to see that God's sovereign purposes are sure, God's sovereign purposes are hidden, God's sovereign purposes are just, and God's sovereign purposes are good. And so I invite you to turn now all the way back to Genesis 37, where the story begins. And we're going to see that that God's purposes his will is fixed and his will will be done, that his ordinances, his decrees will surely come to pass. God's sovereign purposes are sure. Now the story begins here in Genesis chapter 37 where Joseph is 17 years old. And we read here in verse 3 that, his, that he is his father's favorite child. And that's begun to cause him a bit of a problem because the other 11 brothers, which he has, now hate and resent him for this. But the primary reason of their hate begins to build because Joseph has had two dreams. He's had two dreams which depict in the end his brothers bowing down before him and serving him. They depict Joseph one day being ruler over his brothers. Now dreams are going to be very important in this story. And in fact, we're going to see two more occasions of dreams throughout the Joseph narrative. And what I want you to notice here is that in every case, every dream scenario, there are two dreams. They come in pairs. So here you can see in Genesis chapter 37, verse 5, now Joseph had a dream. And then if you jump down to verse 9, then Joseph dreamed another dream. And so you see two. Well, later we're going to see that Joseph will encounter two more dreams, not dreams of his own, but dreams of others. The the dream of a a cupbearer and a baker. And then in another scene, he's going to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh, which will be two. And what I want us to to observe here is that the doubling of the dreams has a significance for us. We'll, We'll explicitly see it later in chapter 41. But what I want you to see here is that as, De- as Joseph will, will later explain, the doubling of the dream means that the matters to which they speak are fixed by God, and God will shortly bring them to pass. That's what he'll tell Pharaoh. And in this case, Joseph's dream reveals that God will put him in a place of power, and his brothers will bow down before him. And so, since this is the Lord's will, there is nothing that can be done to thwart it. His will is sure. It is fixed, and it will shortly come to pass. No one can stand against it. And yet, here's the irony. As the story begins to unfold, this is exactly what Joseph's brothers attempt to do. They attempt to do something about this dream. They attempt to do something with Joseph so that these things will not come to pass. We see in verse 18 that out of their jealousy, they begin to plot to kill their brother. And so one day while they're pasturing their sheep, they saw Joseph from afar. And before he came near, they begin to conspire how they were going to kill him. You can pick up in verse 19. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal 
has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. Do you see that? They have heard what is going to happen, and they are now taking matters into their own hands to seemingly thwart the will of God. But do you see it? You see their evil hearts, don't you? They conspire. They think this is premeditated murder, at least, as they're planning it. It is their will to destroy their brother and to stop whatever rule he may one day have over them. Well, as the story begins to unfold, they end up not killing him. There comes a a group of Ishmaelites, Midianites, who who are traveling by, and they see that they're on their way to Egypt, and and they, they get the idea. Judah, in fact, says, why don't we not kill our brother, but let's sell him. Sell him into slavery, and we can make some money off of him. And now again, you see their evil intent. They're, they're not here to try to save their brother. There's no goodness in their heart. They are greedy, and they will sell their brother for some money. Yet, we see God's sovereign hand behind the scenes that even through their evil intent, God is preserving Joseph's life. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing evil transpire, right? We're seeing through the life of Joseph's brothers, evil seeking to thwart God's purposes. Yet, here's the good news. Their evil actions are actually propelling God's purposes forward. They're actually serving as the means by which God's sovereign purposes are coming to pass in Joseph's life. Now this becomes more explicit if you turn over to Genesis chapter 39. we we got to keep going in this story. Where Joseph is now brought to Egypt and he's been bought by Potiphar. Potiphar is an officer of Pharaoh's court. He is a highly influential man. And so he has brought Joseph or he has bought Joseph and used him in his home. But we see in verse 2 of chapter 39 that the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. Now it was Joseph's brothers who sold him, but it was God's hand that was upon him. Do you see that? Joseph's brothers sold him, but it was God's hand upon him. And God begins to show favor to Joseph by actually uh, bestowing success as Joseph is working over the Potiphar's property. And and, and then he begins to bless all the entire estate to the point that, that the Potiphar puts Joseph over his entire household. God's hand is upon Joseph. However, more evil seems to be done against Joseph. And now this evil isn't exactly the same as the brothers. There's no intent of stopping God's sovereign purposes occurring, but it's just more evil occurring in the world. And so here in this story in particular, we're introduced to the wife of Potiphar. And and this wife is, is, is a bit of an aggressive woman. And she begins to set her adulterous eyes upon Joseph. And if you're familiar with the story, Joseph is righteous and he continually refuses to participate in this wickedness. In fact, he says, how can I do this wickedness and sin against my God and sin against your husband who is master who has entrusted me with all of his household? How can I do this? And so she continually attempts and attempts and attempts. And, and then one time she, she has one last aggressive attempt. She, she, in fact, grabs him by his garment and draws him near and, and, and says, lie with me. And yet Joseph, through all this, the, the scripture tells us, fled. But as he fled, she laid hold of that garment and he fled out. And her, his garment remained in her hand. And so she, with her evil heart, decides that she'll betray him. If she can't have him, she'll destroy him. And so she cries out to the guards. And and when they run in, she says, Joseph has tried to lie with me. He has tried to take advantage of me, but he ran away when I screamed. But I have his garment as proof in my hand. And so again, what are we seeing? We're seeing wickedness on display. And as a result, what happens to Joseph? Well, Joseph is, is obviously sent to prison. 
But despite the evil that is being done to him, look in verse 21. Despite the evil that is being done to him, and he's put into prison, we see in verse 21 of chapter 39, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. We're seeing the same thing. Evil is happening, and yet God's hand is still working, still upon Joseph. So who is it that sent Joseph to prison? Well, in one sense, it's Potiphar's wife, who unjustly accuses him of a crime he didn't commit, and therefore he's put in prison, the king's court, the king's prison. But we know as we're watching, as we're, we're, we're a little more privy to the, the larger narrative, that it was the Lord's hand that remained upon him and was guiding Joseph, even guiding him into this prison. Do you see here that God's purposes are sure? And that even though evil seemingly is abounding, and I'm just giving you the highlights in being willfully done by wicked people, nevertheless, it's being used by God to bring his purposes about. Now, in this story, we have insight into what God's doing, don't we? We know the truth. And, and, but the reality is, is that when we're going through these things, we, we don't have the bigger picture. In a real sense, we're, we're like Job, and we're, we're left in the dark. We're in the dark as to how God is using the evil around us to accomplish his sure purposes. But I want you to see here that, that though these things are hidden, they should still bring us comfort. And so this brings us to our second point, that God's sovereign purposes are hidden. This becomes apparent in the narrative now where Joseph is in prison. And here in prison, in chapter uh, 40, Joseph comes in contact with two of Pharaoh's officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. Now, we don't know exactly what they did, but in, in verse 1, it says that they had committed some offense against their Lord. They had betrayed Pharaoh in some way, and now they too are in prison. But one day, while they're there, they, they disclose that they've had troubling dreams, dreams that they have no understanding of, and they share them with Joseph. And, and Joseph, in verse 8, says something remarkable. He says, do not interpretations belong to God. Tell them to me. They don't understand what's going on. And he says, well, that's, that's, that's true. Only the meaning of these things can be understood by God. He's, he's the one who can disclose them. But what we're seeing here is that Joseph is the revealer in the story of God's divine mysteries. He's like a prophet who's given insight into God's providential hand. He's able to, to maybe peel back uh, the veil and we can see what's going on behind the scenes. But it's important for us to understand the principle of what Joseph says in verse 8. The meaning of our life and circumstances, they belong to God. And, and they don't belong to us. We don't see them. We are like Job, who, who uh, re will remain in, in very much of a sense in the dark as to what God is doing in the world, even doing in our own lives and the circumstances that come upon us. Now you might be saying, okay, Chase, how does that bring me comfort, Why, that God keeps me in the dark, that God isn't letting me know what is going on? Well, well, there's a few reasons why this should be comforting and why this is the way it should be. Well, one, one element I just want to encourage you with is that when we feel in the dark, you're not unique. Oftentimes when we're going through the trials and we, we, we feel as if God has maybe forgotten us, that God is silent, we think, well, maybe I'm unspiritual and maybe, maybe I don't know God. And all these doubts begin to flood our mind. And what I want you to see here is that, no, this is normal. The meaning of what is going on, the purposes which God is accomplishing, he does not disclose to us, at least in detail. The details as to what God is doing are not known for us. But furthermore, let's suppose he did tell us. 
If he told you everything that he was doing, what would happen? Well, on one level, we wouldn't learn how to trust him. We would actually never trust. This, this would actually produce in us an illusion of self-reliance. We would think we are still in control. We would actually, I think, take matters into our own hands, much like Joseph's brothers did, and we would say, I don't like what God is doing, and therefore I'm going to take matters into my own hands to thwart those things from happening. That's what we would do. And so we, would, we wouldn't trust God. In fact, I think this would fuel us to oppose him. Besides, if we knew what God was doing and all that he is seeking to accomplish in us, through us, and around us, brothers and sisters, we would have no joy in life. We would have absolutely no joy. In fact, that knowledge would terrify us. We would live in constant fear. Is this when it's about to happen? When's it about to strike? What's he going to do? And I think in our wicked hearts, we would begin to resent God. So we should take comfort in the fact that God's sovereign purposes are not disclosed to us. He doesn't let them, let us know them. And so coming back to the story, Joseph is a unique case. And this story is here to, to tell us, as I hope to see, the grander story, the bigger story, the bigger purpose so that we can have something to hold on to when we don't know what's going on in the moment. But coming back to the story, Joseph reveals the meaning of these two officers' dreams. And, and for one, the chief cupbearer, this is good news for him. And just imagine if you're in their, their place, especially the other guys. This is good news. And Joseph tells him, you're going to be restored to your position. But for the chief baker, uh, the dream wasn't so good for you. Are you sure you want to know? Here's what's going to happen. Actually, while your friend the cupbearer is going to be restored, you are going to be hanged by Pharaoh and the birds are going to pick out your head. Oh, might have been better not knowing that that was going to happen. Well, knowing that the cupbearer would live, Joseph asked him in verse uh, 22, will you remember me? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty good request. Hey, will you remember me? I've told you what's going to happen. And when you see these things unfold, I just ask that you would remember me. But another evil occurs. Look in verse 23. It's the last verse of chapter 40. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. What selfishness. He was all consumed about himself. Thank you. And he moved on. Not only did Joseph be forgotten by the cupbearer, but as we move into chapter 41, we see that he was forgotten for two whole years. Two years. Two years he is forgotten. But we know God has not forgotten him, haven't we? After the two years, Pharaoh now has a dream. This is the third pair of dreams that we're going to be introduced to. And he has a couple of dreams that now disturb him. And, and none of his enchanters, none of his magicians, those around his court, were able to provide the meaning of the interpretation. We see that in verse 8 of chapter 41. And we know, of course, they can't. Because God's sovereign purposes are hidden. They are hidden behind the veil. They are not disclosed. However, having heard Pharaoh's dilemma, the chief cupbearer is in his presence and then all of a sudden remembers Joseph. Well, why does he remember now? Because this is when God wants him to be remembered. This is the time when Joseph needs to be there. He didn't need to be remembered before the dreams that were going to come to Pharaoh were going to come to pass. He needed to be remembered at this point, two years later. This is all according to God's sovereign plan. And so the chief cupbearer remembers Joseph and tells Pharaoh, hey, actually, there's a guy in prison that I met who told me everything that was going to happen to me in my dream, and it all came to pass. You should give him a shot. And so Pharaoh says, well, sure, what's it going to hurt? So they call Joseph up, and he actually gives the interpretation to the dream. 
And it's through this revelation, brothers and sisters, that we're given insight into God's complete sovereignty over all things. And what I want you to see here, including natural evil. Look here in chapter 41, verses 28 through 32. 41, chapter 41, verses 28 through 32. Joseph says to Pharaoh, It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe." And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. So through Joseph here, God is showing Pharaoh what God is going to do. Who is bringing this famine? God is. God is over this. Now, he's brought to bring good upon the land, we see. There's going to be great plenty in the land for seven years, but then afterwards there's going to be such a great famine that it's going to be as if the the previous seven years of plenty never happened. Now, we're not told the means by which God will bring this natural evil upon the land, but, but what is clear is that he's sovereign over it. He reigns over it. He is in control over it. Just as he is in control over the moral evil of Joseph's brothers and Potiphar's wife. What we see here is that good comes from God and so does the evil. Yet, we got to keep that anchor from last Sunday in place. God is good and not evil. Now your mind might be splitting. Okay, how does that work? I really don't have time to unpack how all that may work. That's really the best we can say. But what we do see in the scripture are these two anchors. God is holy, good, righteous, and holy. And yet he reigns over all things, both good and evil. But evil cannot be attributed to him. Brothers and sisters, here's the important question, though. Do you have the faith to endure the silence of God? Do you have the faith and understanding of who God is to rest in the truth that even in the darkness of both moral and natural evil, his purposes are fixed and are coming to pass? And when we understand the extent of God's sovereignty, and even now as we're experiencing the natural evil of a plague, coronavirus, what's happening? Well, as I pray, our faith is actually growing as we're trusting. And as we continue to go through this trial, go through this season, we will get to see his providential hand unfold at least at some level. And as we see his plan unfold, we see his purposes unfold, we see the opportunities for the gospel, we see the work that he's doing in our lives of sanctification, of transforming us from one degree of glory to the next, even through great trial, heartbreak, even maybe death, God's plan is unfolding. However, it's important that when we think of the fact that God reigns over evil, that even the the evil is under his sovereign plan, that we don't let go of God's justice to lay hold of his sovereignty. And so we must find comfort that God's sovereign purposes are just. And by this, I mean we cannot attribute the evil to God. And the text is actually going to make that abundantly clear that the responsibility for all the evil of this world lies in God's creatures and not in himself. And this point is made clear as we continue through the story 
Now Joseph has, has been put into place of power. He's now second in command uh, and overseeing all the land of Egypt. Next to, to Pharaoh, there is no one more powerful than Joseph. And he's particularly given charge to manage the land through the seven years of plenty and then the seven years of famine. And it's during the famine that God sends Joseph's brothers to Egypt. The brothers are back into the scenario. And they are sent to Egypt to buy grain so that they may live and they may survive. And that begins in chapter 42. But when Joseph's brothers arrive, he, like them, sees them from afar, but he doesn't plot for their ill, he plots for their good. But he does it in a very strange means. He actually keeps his identity hidden from them. And in fact, he puts them through, over the next series of chapters, through two tests. Two tests that are actually kind of strange. But I hope to show you why he does that. The first test is that he treats them like spies. He knows who they are. They don't know who he is. And he says, you are spies here to, to spy out the land. And so he interrogates them. I don't know if this was like Jack Bauer 24 style or what, but he interrogates them and tells them that they are spies. And he says, you have to prove your innocence because during that interrogation, he learns that they have a new brother. They have Benjamin. And he says, you need to prove your innocence by bringing Benjamin to me here in Egypt. Now, this was going to bring great hardship on them because they knew that Benjamin was now their father, Jacob's favorite. And he'd already lost Joseph, and so he was holding tight to Benjamin. He wasn't going to let him go. And they knew, oh my word, how's this going to work? And I want you to see in chapter 42, verses 21 through 22, their response. What, what does this test do with them? Well, we see here in verse 21, then they said to one another, in truth we are what? Do you see that? Guilty. Guilty concerning our brother in what we saw and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Verse 22, and Reuben, Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They got guilty consciences. And by their own lips and by their own admission, they are guilty of this evil. It's not God. Yet, we know it's all under his sovereign care. There's a second attest occurs. They go back to, 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 to Jacob, back in Canaan, and they tell him all this, and they, and they work it out. You'll have to read the story on your own. But they come now a second time, and, and Joseph invites them to a grand feast at his house. And they've got Benjamin with them. And, and, and this time, after the feast, Joseph tells his steward, put my silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And then once they start heading out, I want you to stop them and say, why have you repaid good with evil? And I want you to search their bags, and you will find that cup. And I want you to, to basically accuse them of theft. I mean, the story's strange, isn't it? All sorts of weird things happening. And so this happens, and again, what does it do? It produces a confession. And in chapter 44, verses 14 through 16, we see Judah's confession. And if you look there, listen to what he says. Verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house while he's still there, they fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. God has found us out. We are guilty. Now, he doesn't realize, really, the extent of it, but by his own lips he is condemned. So let me ask you again, who is guilty for the evil that's occurred in this story? 
what we're seeing in the lives of, of Joseph's brothers, a principle that we can then begin to extrapolate against all the evils. By their own admission, it's Joseph's brothers who are guilty, right? It's Joseph's brothers who are held responsible. Yet as we're now going to see, God is the one, though, who ultimately is bringing all these things about to accomplish his purpose. And so though God works through evil, brothers and sisters, what we're being taught here is that he remains good because the guilt remains on his sinful creatures. So not only are God's sovereign purposes just, but now, fourthly, God's sovereign purposes are good. And so after testing his brothers, Joseph reveals himself in chapter 45. And he says something remarkable. Look in verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. There we see the responsibility. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Why? For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will, are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God and he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Whoa. You sold me. You did this. You did that. But ultimately, God sent me. God has been working even through your evil, brothers. And so while it's Joseph's brothers who sold him into Egypt, what we see here is that ultimately God is the one who brought him here. And why has God done this? Well, he tells us in verse 7 to preserve a remnant. A remnant of Israel's offspring. And now we're beginning to see, oh, this is what has been the main purpose. Here's what God has been doing through the life of Joseph and through all the evil that has been around him. But here's the kicker. The whole story really isn't about Joseph. Now that might make your mind, what? It's been all about Joseph. What are you talking about? No. Actually, the story has very little to do with Joseph, but everything to do with God's redemptive purposes. The story of Joseph is a story about God keeping his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that through their offspring he will save the world. God used Joseph, and the span of this is at least 11 years. God used Joseph through all those valleys, through all those evils, to do what? To bring his family to Egypt and provide for them through a famine. Why? So that they may live. And not just that they may live, but the offspring may live. That the line of promise all the way through Eve and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would carry on. And so that the promise that was made to Eve that we saw last week in Genesis 3.15, that her offspring, a child, would come from her who will crush the head of the serpent and put an end to evil altogether. This story is not about Joseph. But it is about one of the brothers. This is like one of those stories when you're watching a movie and there's something in the beginning of the movie that's just a little bit odd and then you think about it at that point and then you, you get to the end and then it comes back and you find out, oh, it was so significant. Well, this story really isn't about Joseph in the immediate. It's about his brother Judah. It's all about saving Judah's life. And Judah's the one who plotted to kill him and then plotted to sell him and who confessed with his own mouth his own guilt. See, when we began this story in chapter 37, I skipped a very important chapter, chapter 38. 
Now, you're going to have to go read this for yourself, but it is an awful chapter. Awful evil. Grotesque evil that you're going to have to just read on your own. But here's the gist of what happens. We get this story about Judah who is tricked by his daughter-in-law to sleep with him because her previous two husbands have died and they have not left her with children. And so she decides she will disguise herself as a prostitute and she becomes pregnant by her father-in-law, Judah. And she gives birth to twins, and these names are important, Perez and Zerah. See, in chapter 38, verses 29 through 30, it's an odd story, and then it just moves on with Joseph, and we just keep going. But now, as we come to chapter 49, Jacob is back. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob is on his deathbed, and he's now pronouncing the blessing of God by which the offspring of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel that will come from these sons, will bless the world. And he begins to pronounce blessings upon them, but really all the blessings center on Judah. They center on Judah. And we see in chapter 49, beginning in verse 8, this blessing to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Everybody else is going to look to you, not Joseph. That was just temporary. What's the bigger plan? And your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. There's imagery of crushing the head of enemies like the serpent. And your father's son shall bow down before you. Who is Judah? Judah is a lion's cub. And from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. And the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. What is going on? Here is the point. The rule of God is going to come through a descendant of Judah, a child of him. And it is through him and his royal line that he will reign and he will rule and all the peoples will be in obedience to this king who will come. Now if we just were to step back as the story unfolds, you might want to go to the book of Ruth. Go past Joshua, Judges. If you can find the book of Ruth, I think I'll have the, the scripture that I want to bring to your mind on the screen. But the end of Ruth, in chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, we're given a, a genealogy, a line of descendants. And as the story unfolds, what we find out is Perez, the son of Tamar, and Tamar, who tricked her father-in-law into lying with her. Her son, their son, Perez, fathered Hezron, who fathered Ram, who fathered Nashon, who fathered Salmon, who fathered Boaz, who fathered Obad, who fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David, who's the king. And if we were to go back to the Gospel of Matthew, it opens up a genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 that goes through that line with Perez. And it keeps going after David and it brings us all the way to Jesus Christ. What was meant for evil, brothers and sisters, God meant for good. God meant for good. And that has been the whole story from the beginning in Genesis all the way leading to the cross where God's sovereign purposes have been revealed. We now see what God has been doing. And we now see the king who is to come, his son, Jesus Christ. And so as we're now post the cross, we're now looking back at the cross, we now can rest assured that though the world seems to be falling apart, there's moral evil, natural evil, seems to be abounding, none of it has escaped God's notice and none of us escapes his hand. What he's doing specifically in this moment, I do not know it's hidden. 
But on the grand scheme, the big picture, he is preparing you and me and all who trust in him for an eternal weight of glory, which Jesus will reveal when he returns. But until that day, brothers and sisters, we can find comfort that God's sovereign promises, his sovereign purposes are sure, they are hidden, they are just, but they are for our ultimate good. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, Lord, we only get a glimpse of your glory here. I'm sure in some sense we have more questions than maybe we do answers, but Lord, I pray for our people right now. I pray for all of us as we are all experiencing a similar trial, though it's probably pressing us in unique ways, unique fears, unique doubts. Lord, please comfort us with these truths that you are good, you are holy and righteous. Yet these things that are evil, that are a result of the fall, are yet accomplishing your sovereign purposes, your redemptive purposes for us. And so, Lord, while we, we may be experiencing your silence, while we are still waiting for Jesus, the King, to come, Lord, we can look back and we can see through the story of Scripture, the story of redemption, that you're still writing the story. And that you are working redemption in us and for us and for your glory. And your glory means our good and our well-being and our ultimate joy and happiness forever and ever. And so, Lord, please bring these truths upon our hearts and our minds this week and the weeks to come and every trial that may come forward that we may not rest in ourselves not willow into, uh, spare, into despair, but that we would lay hold to the truth that you are the sovereign king of the universe and you are working good for us. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.